today we're going to explore animals. How to make sure a pet hedgehog is happy. Find snakes. How sharks go to sleep. Fighting lizards. Since we're talking all about critters, I had to ask our guests what animal they wish they could be. Here's what Ryan said. Ryan's a reptile expert. It's called a tuatara. It's a super cool lizard-looking animal from New Zealand. Our guest, Dr. Doss, is a vet who takes care of all kinds of animals like hedgehogs, rats, chinchillas, snakes. Dr. Doss is a fan of a lot of different animals, so he had some trouble choosing. That's a great question. Maybe some type of eagle. I'd love to fly. We talk with three animal lovers in this episode. First, Dr. Grayson Doss and Ryan McVeigh. And later, we'll talk with someone you may have heard of. His name is Chris Kratt. Does that ring a bell? Wild Kratts, yes! Explore animals with me on... Explorers Club. We need to clear up one thing right away. Dr. Doss, you love rats. Ryan, you know, you are the snake person here, and snakes eat rats. Is that right, Dr. Doss? That's true. Some snakes do actually eat rats. So, Ryan, you know, do snakes swallow their food whole? How do they consume that rat? Yeah, so they actually dislocate their jaws in two different ways in order to open their mouth up to like three or four times bigger than the width of their body um, to consume their prey whole. It's pretty cool to see, and it's a really unique adaptation that those animals have. Do you watch it? Can you see that happening? Absolutely. With any pet that you have, like pet snakes that you have or anything like that, when you feed them, you can definitely watch that process. Um, And it can be a lot, it can be really quick. So it's actually really cool to see how an animal with no hands or fingers or uh, can eat something so big so fast. And then do you see the big lump on on that snake where that that rat is going down? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one thing. Their their body stretches out to handle that. And then within a couple days, they start to digest most of it. So that lump kind of goes away. Dr. Das, are there any defenses for those rats against these hungry snakes? True, yeah. In the wild, you would see rats... um, trying to get away. They'd be running. They're super fast at running and they're very agile kind of navigating their environment. They'd also, basically their main defense would be their teeth. And so they would be able to bite the snake to try and get away and to kind of scare the snake. So that would be their main defense mechanism other than speed. How sharp are those rat teeth? How do they use their their teeth? Well, their their teeth are actually very sharp. They continue to grow um, throughout their life. And so they have to chew on things. And as they eat their food, they're going to wear down those teeth over time. So they're actually quite sharp. So, Ryan, tell us the difference between reptiles and amphibians. Yeah, so reptiles, they're both cold-blooded animals, which means that they don't produce their own body heat. They get their heat from their surroundings. So in order to warm up, they have to go somewhere warmer. If they want to cool down, they have to go somewhere colder. Um, Amphibians, amphibious means living part of its life on land and water, which means that almost all amphibians start out as eggs and then turn into some sort of larval form, like a tadpole, and then they morph into their adult form, um, which would be like a little frog or a salamander. Reptiles have uh, scales, which amphibians don't, um, and then they generally are born as a live baby or uh, they hatch out of an egg. And what kind of reptiles can we find living here in Wisconsin? 
Wisconsin has a really awesome reptile diversity. And I think between reptiles and amphibians, there's 56 or 58 species, um, including for reptiles, um, two species of rattlesnakes. And most people don't know, but four species of lizards, one which doesn't actually have legs and looks like a snake. Ooh, what is that? So it's called a slender glass lizard. It looks like a snake, but 50% of its body is actually tail. And they can still drop their tail like other lizards in defense. But what makes it not a snake is the fact that it can't dislocate its jaw uh, and it has ear holes. Well, they're like a transformer, it sounds like. They can transform into other things. (laughs) Almost. It's it's, it's a really (laughs) unique little cool little animal. And they live um, uh, around like the central Wisconsin area in some of the uh, sandier areas of the state. Ooh, so they like sand. Do they burrow down into that sand? Yeah, absolutely. They they build burrows and just uh, just a really cool species. It's kind of unique to see um, the, them and snakes, animals that, that uh, don't have legs, be so active and agile, including uh, one snake species we have in the state, the blue racer, um, can actually move up to 17 miles per hour. Uh, it's one of the fastest snakes in the world, and it doesn't have legs. It's super cool. It can outrun you with no legs. Wow. Dr. Das, why are rats so smart? It's a great question. I think over time, they've had to adapt to environments to kind of, you know, be able to increase their population. And so they, one way to do that is to kind of develop certain skills to survive. And I think that has enabled them to move around in an increasingly enlarging human population and to kind of thrive in areas um, where people thrive. I think that has kind of pushed them to become smarter over time. And, and you compare them to other mammals of similar sizes, they're just very intelligent. How do you make an interesting habitat for your pet rat? One thing you can do because they're so smart is to always provide them with something to think about and something to solve. And we call that enrichment. And so constantly giving them new toys, they love toys, giving them environments to navigate through like tunnels and mazes. Um, if you have an, you know, an enclosure for them, making sure it has multiple levels, gives them room to kind of exercise and explore. And then sometimes food items, just giving them a new food item can help them um, kind of experience something new and that it can help them kind of develop and kind of really challenges their brain. So Ryan, you know, if there are kids out there who do want a pet snake or a pet lizard, but, you know, parents say, no, no way, what advice would you give them? Research is so important with reptiles, and the big reason for that is because every single reptile you'll see at a pet store comes from totally different places all over the world, and the things that they need to be healthy are all very, very different, and you need to know that for your animal in order to keep it for a long time and keep it happy. When the kids start learning about the reptile, uh, reptiles and amphibians, parents end up learning just by association, um, and then the more they learn, the more they're open to that idea. You have to know all about its background and its history. How much time should you spend caring for, you know, that that pet lizard? I know it probably varies between a bearded dragon and and some type of snake, but what what is the upkeep? Upkeep is probably the most minimal of any pet you could possibly have. When it comes to snakes, you make sure they have clean water, and then they eat once a week and they poop once a week, and you really can't get much easier than that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and bearded dragons, 
or, or other lizards, they'll go to the bathroom a little more often, so it's a little more upkeep. Um, but then interaction when it comes to taking them out and handling them and working with them can be almost as much as you'd like, um, as long as you re- re- always remember that that habitat you've created is the perfect environment for them. So while you do want to enjoy them and take them out and play with them, they, that heat and humidity and special lighting that they need doesn't exist outside of their tank. So you need to make sure that they're not out all day, every day. Dr. Das, let's talk about those adorable hedgehogs. There's a kind that's called the African pygmy hedgehog. Uh, how big do these little guys get? Um, they usually stay pretty small if you compare them to other hedgehog species, like those that you would see like in Great Britain. Um, they, they probably get no bigger than you can hold in your hands and maybe up to, you know, not quite up to half a pound. So they stay pretty small. Um, and they certainly are, they make really fun pets. What do their spikes feel like? Their spikes are pretty pokey. Um, they're very sharp, <laughs> but they don't, they don't tend to come off really easily like a porcupine would. So if, if, over time, as they kind of get used to you, um, they don't really raise their spines as much into a protective ball. So they, they become a little bit more familiar and then they're less frightened. And so they, they, their spines become less pokey over time, I guess. How can owners keep them happy? How should we care for them? Sure. Uh, hedgehogs like to um, exercise in the wild. You know, these are in African species. They will run several miles each day looking for food, and so they stay pretty active. And so when you have a pet hedgehog, a lot of them like to run in wheels. Like if you think about um, rats and mice, and they had like running wheels in their cages, and then a lot of them like to explore different environments. And so Um, providing tunnels and different toys for them and different food items um, can keep them happy for sure. Ryan and Dr. Das, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. We have another animal expert on the show today, do you recognize that theme song? It's Wild Kratz! Brothers Chris and Martin Kratz go on adventures to learn about the coolest animals in the world and their amazing creature powers. Chris Kratz is a zoologist, which means he studies all kinds of animals. And lately, Chris is really into spider monkeys that live high up in the tropical rainforest canopy. Chris, thanks for coming to the Explorers Club. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my gosh, you get this asked a million times. What do you think is the coolest animal out there? Oh, I do get asked that a lot. And it is the most difficult question to answer. I mean, I, you know, I I have to say it's usually the animal that I'm with, um, that I'm with at the moment or that I've just recently spent a lot of time with. So I guess right now, um, my answer would be red foxes because I've been spending a lot of time this spring camped out at a fox den um, watching these, these young foxes, four young foxes, grow up and, and get fed by their mother and father and play and practice their hunting skills. And they are so cute. And the parents are, are such good parents. And it's just, it's been a real pleasure to kind of get a glimpse into their life. What does their den look like? Well, they use, um, you, you know, they can use anything. Oftentimes they use like old dilapidated sheds 
or like mound areas where they dig holes underneath, you know, log piles, sheltered away a little bit. And a lot of times they use um, several different den sites, like they'll move their kits two or three times as the kits are growing up to different den sites. They do have to worry about some predators. So to keep some predators sort of off the, off their trail, they tend to, to they tend to move them slightly. Well, from Fox, we're going to move to lions. Drake is joining us from DeForest with a question. Hi, Drake. What's your question? Um, why are, um, tiger, um, why are lions so loud? Oh, why are they so loud? Yeah, that's a great question, Drake. Well, they they roar. They do these roars, and those roars can usually be heard from two miles away. So you're right. They can be really loud. And mainly what they're doing is they're sort of proclaiming their their turf. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of saying, this area is my area, and anybody within earshot better stay away and recognize that this is my turf. And so, so they do that occasionally to sort of stake their claim on their territory. And they, also yeah. sometimes to gather, gather the rest of the pride together. Oh, so it, it can kind of be a, a, like a, a rallying cry to say, hey, gang, come, come in here. We need to talk. Yeah, yeah, it can be that, too. Well, let's take a listen and see just how loud lion roars can get. Whoa. Hi, Lion. Drake, thank you for the call. Let's bring in Owen now in Madison. Hi, Owen. Hi. What's your question? Chris, what's your favorite color of an animal? Oh, well, I'd have to say, I guess my favorite color of an animal is green, because as you know, I really like green. But one of the things I love is that um, there are so many colors in nature, and there are animals that are probably, you know, any color you can think of. Um, We're doing an episode this season, we're working on it, it's about poison, poison frogs. I don't know if you know about them. Sometimes they're called poison arrow frogs or poison dart frogs. They are they have poisonous skin. That's why they're called that. And they're sometimes called poison dart frogs because some tribes in in the Amazon and in South America, they've used tribes in in the Amazon and in South America, they've used the poison from their skin to put on the tips of their arrows when they go hunting um traditionally. But they're super colorful. And one reason they are is to advertise to everybody, um, this is common in nature, when, when things are poisonous, they're often brightly colored. So they're advertising to everybody, don't mess with me because, you, you know, they, they try to be a memorable color because if an animal tries to eat them, they might get sick. And then they'll never t- they'll they'll never try to eat something that color again. But poison frogs come in all different colors, all of the rainbow. They can be purple and blue and yellow and green and red. They're gorgeous. So how do you get your cameras and your video equipment in there to capture these poison frogs in their glory and in their habitat? Well, one of the the most fun things about um, about filming wildlife is that when you're trying to get good footage and good behavior of the animals, you have to know about them. 
and you have to kind of think like them, and that's the best way to try to get the footage. So we use all kinds of different methods. Sometimes we, we know where a den is, and we go, and we, we go to the den, and we get them comfortable with our presence there so that they go about their normal business, um, even with us there with our cameras. Sometimes we go to where they like to get food, like a fruiting fig tree. Lots of animals in, in Asian rainforests, when the, when the fig trees fruit, they gather there for the overabundance of food. And so you get to kind of think like the animal that you're trying to film. Let's bring in Finn now. And Finn is joining us from Eau Claire. Hi, Finn. Hi. What's your question? What was the hardest animal to find? Oh, well, you know, sometimes that's a really good question. Um, The hardest animal to find, I know one of the hardest animals to follow was um, chimpanzees when we were filming them because they live in this mountainous part of of um, Africa and Uganda and we were filming these chimps when they were when they were moving through the forest um, when they were looking actually for monkeys to hunt because surprisingly they do that um, but we had to they move fast they move over mountainous terrain in dense jungles and it was hard it was hard to to keep up with them with all our gear. We also sometimes have to wait and wait patiently. Like when we were filming orcas down in Patagonia, killer whales, we, um, we were on this beach where they regularly hunt seals and you never know when they're going to come by. They have huge territories. They do um, circuits around their territories looking for food. And we had to wait every day in our blind on the beach for a few weeks and and we weren't you know it was getting to be the end of our trip and we were worried we weren't going to be able to film them and then on one of the last days of our expedition they arrived and uh and it was amazing we were able to film them and some some young orcas but yeah you need a lot of patience sometimes too oh i bet that was just amazing for them to arrive when you had been so patient finn thanks for the question let's go to maya now in waterford hi maya um hi um hi why don't sharks sleep on the bottom of the water yeah, well, some sharks do. Um, some sharks do. Some sharks are, are like to hang out near the bottom of the water, um, and and they can lie motionless. Other sharks need to kind of keep moving um, to to get uh, water and oxygen through their lungs. Um, a lot of sea creatures, like dolphins, for example, they rest their brain, but they don't really sleep the way we do because they, um, they sort of sleep or rest one side of their brain and the other side is, is active looking for predators and, and things like that. And then they'll, um, they'll wake up that side of the brain and they'll, they'll give their other side of their brain uh, a rest or a sleep. So it's interesting. Sleep is different for different animals, and we don't really know much. We're still learning a lot about about sleep and how animals rest 
Ma- Maya, the what do you, Maya, what do you like about sharks? That, uh, probably that, like, some sharks eat, like, eat killer whales. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some great whites have, but 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 um, killer whales, orcas, have been seen um, eating sharks too. So um, those are those are two of the the apex predators, the biggest, strongest uh, predators in the ocean. We have another call, Helen from Byron. Hi, Helen. How are wolves? Such a great team. How do wolves work together? Oh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. That's a great question and a great owl. Yeah, they work together as a pack. And part of it is, you know, in order to work together, we as humans know this too, you have to have good communication. And, um, and wolves have good communication. They have all sorts of ways that they basically talk to each other, whether it's, it's visual cues, you know, different body postures and poses, and, um, and they have different vocalizations, sounds they make that, that say different things to one another, and the howl, kind of like we were talking about with the lion's roar, it kind of brings the pack together, sometimes assembles them before a hunt. They use their noses, too, to, to, to talk to one another and different smells and scents. So, so that's how they kind of coordinate with one another and get along and communicate. And they also live in packs partly because they hunt some of the biggest prey around. Um, like, you know, here in North America, they hunt moose and elk and caribou, um, even, even some bison sometimes of different sizes. So, so they need to have a strong, large pack to be able to take down some of these large prey with good defenses. Helen, thank you for calling. Let's bring in Mira now in Madison. Hi, Mira. Hi. Hi. What's your Hi. question? Um, what makes a rattlesnake rattle? Oh, yeah. What makes a rattlesnake rattle? That's a great question. Okay, so there's two ways to answer that. The rattle is special scales, you know, like reptiles and snakes and things. They have um, scales on their bodies, right? Um, And these, the tip of a rattlesnake's tail is special scales that are kind of dried out and and loose on the tail. And so when when they shake their tail, it makes a sound. And, you know, one of the reasons they do this, they do this rattling, is because they don't want to bite anybody. So a lot of people are scared of rattlesnakes, and they think, oh, they're going to bite me, they want to bite me. But they don't. They don't want to bite you. And so, so the rattle is a warning saying, hey, back off, you're too close, I'm really scared, I'm really nervous, please, I'm afraid of you, back off, or I might have to try to defend myself and bite. So, um, so that's real. They don't use the rattle when they're hunting, you know, when they're hunting, they're quiet and they sneak up on their prey and they bite them and use their venom. 
the rattle is used when they're scared and are asking a predator or a human to back off and leave them alone. We should be very attentive to that. Mira, thank you. Let's bring in Toby now in Madison. Hi, Toby. Hi. 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 What do you want to say, bud? My favorite animal is a Draco lizard. Your favorite animal is what? Draco lizard. A Draco lizard. Oh, yeah. Draco lizards are great. They are lizards that can glide from tree to tree in the Asian jungles. They have um, flaps of skin under their arms, right, connecting under their arms to the side of their body, and they can make a big leap and glide through the air to another tree. It's amazing. Like here in North America, we have flying squirrels that use a similar trick, and even in the same forests in, in Asia, they have flying snakes that have flaps of skin on their sides and can glide from tree to tree. Wow. So we should look up if we're, if we're around those parts. Toby, thank you so much. Now let's go to Colton in Neosha. Hi, Colton. Hi. Why are there so many doom bugs in this time of year? Why are there so many June bugs this time of year? Yeah. Yeah, well, summer's a good time for insects. They like to come out in the summer. The weather is is good for them Um, here in North America in the summer, of course, and there's food because most of, you know, a lot of insects eat plants and rely on plants and things. So um, although some, of course, eat other insects and things like that, but... They can survive. A lot of insects have trouble with the cold weather during the winter, so they do different things, uh, you know, similar to hibernation. They hide away in, in under bark and some in the ground um, to get through the, through the wintertime. But in the spring, they come out, there's food around, and they're active. Colton, thank you for the question. Chris, you got to visit a really cool place, the mountains of southern China, and you got to hang out with pandas. What are pandas like? Oh, yeah. Pandas are amazing and truly, really unique animals. They, first of all, I think a lot of people know that they eat bamboo. Um, And they, well, they're really cute, but they also, they, they eat this bamboo, and it's a type of plant that... A lot of animals can't eat because it has toxins and things in them. So in it, so pandas have a special way of doing it. They have special bacteria in their gut that helps them digest this bamboo, which is really hard to digest and poisonous for a lot of animals. But it's hard to get nutrition from it, so they have a really slow metabolism, kind of like sloths. And um, they have to conserve their energy because it's hard to extract from bamboo. And so that's one of the reasons you see them, you know, you never see them moving very fast, although they can if they want to. But they're kind of often just lying around in cute poses, hunting mm-hmm. away at bamboo because they have to. And pandas are endangered. Is there anything we can do to help them? Well, um, yeah, I mean, there are different groups um, working 
to on on panda conservation and you can you can if you're really interested in pandas you can look up um which groups those are and 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 try to find ways to help pandas specifically we also have a a not-for-profit organization called crap brothers creature heroes what we're doing is empowering people who love animals to be creature heroes by finding ways to help animals. And one of our first projects um, was to create a, a wildlife refuge here in North America. And we polled a bunch of kids and found out what animal kids wanted to help, and they wanted to help grizzly bears. Mm. So we made a, a grizzly bear refuge, which protects critical grizzly bear habitat, as well as a lot of other animals um, that live there and rely on it. And now we're really excited because we're embarking on creating our second Crap Brothers Creature Fuge. That will, that's what we call our wildlife refuges. Wow, that is so cool. Chris, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It was really fun talking with you, Kate. And really good questions coming in from kids. So thanks, everybody out there. Well, that concludes our exploring for today. If you want to check out the Craft Brothers organization that helps endangered animals, you can go to CreatureHero.org. The Explorers Club is brought to you by Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm your host, Kate Archer-Kent. This podcast was produced by Colleen Leahy and Brad Kohlberg. Carl Christensen wrote our music. Our executive producer is Molly Stentz. Do you like this episode? Let us know. We're at kids at WPR.org. You can find more episodes at WPR.org slash kids and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye.